Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The opinions, language, and discussion expressed in Disability After Dark may be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Do you want to keep the conversation lit around sex and disability? Want to spark a conversation about something you heard on the show? Feel like shining some light on an issue that I haven't even thought of? You can do all that and get the inside scoop on what happens in my brain after dark by following me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A. And be sure to use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark all over your social media so we can shine light on sex and disability together. Kelly Carbone, thanks so much for coming on Disability After Dark. It's so, so good to have you here. We've been trying to do this forever. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have this conversation and to finally get to be on the show. Yeah, it's been it's been a long time coming since for months and months now, Kelly and I have been trying to uh, trying to, to trying to link up to get this interview done. We have a lot of stuff that we want to cover and so why don't you kind of tell the audience a bit about the work you do? And uh, you and I met via your your thesis project. Can you kind of tell us about that? Sure. Um, I'm currently a graduate student studying women's and gender studies at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Uh, and my work primarily is focused on um, modified sex ed programs for teens uh, in special education in high schools, predominantly public schools within the U.S. Uh, So basically what I'm doing for that project is I'm looking at curriculums that are currently instilled uh, and basically looking into the content but also the way in which the content is disseminated and if that's modified in a way that can be accessible for everyone who's receiving that information. That's such a, that, that's, that's a really um, cool thing you're doing because I, I've studied curriculums within sex ed and I'm sure what you found in your work is that a lot of them aren't accessible to uh, the disabled population. Right, absolutely. Whether that's just a matter of like representation, there's no representation, or even the way in which the information is presented. A lot of times I've found that Schools will say, you know, hey, we've actually, we do present this information to all of our students, but in practice, it's presented in a way that most of the students, regardless of their IEP or regardless of the, of the classes that they're taking, are not really comprehending or digesting in a way because of the, I'm going to say like the academic way it's presented. It's not really presented in a colloquial or a way that's like relevant to their lives. I totally agree. I think that um, the way we look at sex ed doesn't. There's no representation of, of of different bodies of different experiences. There's typically it's boy girl. That's what happens. If anybody deviates from that in any way, whether it be through ability or gender expression or any of that, um, there's nothing for you. And the school says we're doing our job, but we're not looking to, we're not willing to look past the box we're set up to do, and then we, we won't go any further. 
Absolutely. Uh, I, I absolutely agree when it comes to lack of representation. I know personally, self-identifying as a trans man, um, there was no representation of any kind of uh, queerness or difference in terms of sexual preference or gender identity within any of these curriculums. And now, more recently, as I'm looking at them, specifically in the context of New York City, where I work, uh, there is more uh, representation on paper, uh, particularly for the LGBT community. However, there's also been reports that have come out that state that there's no accountability for how this information is actually being taught and if it's actually being taught. Yeah. And it comes down to a, pr- uh, a question of practice, you know. Yeah, totally. I mean, they have, they have, they've put in a lot of these textbooks and a lot of these these classes. They put the, they do the work of putting the marginalized community in there and said, oh yeah, we've given you a box and a textbook, or we've, we've, you know, gave you a class to talk about that stuff. And so it, it's really upsetting that all we get is a box. Right, right. And yet there's such importance also in, in some places to even still fight for that box, you know? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the, the box is what is what you you want the box because you're like at least it's something but then also right. you're like well that's I deserve more than, I deserve more than a box and so a lot of the work that I do I, I clamor for that box I want that representation but I'm also like I could write a whole volume for you why can't I why can't I give you more right absolutely so that, so that somebody has a has a spot I found that during my research, um, I've noticed a lot of parallels uh, between the trans community and the disabled community. Yeah, there. Are... Uh, that sparked my interest in in further exploring these connections. Yeah, and that's kind of how we. That's something that you and I talked about a lot in when mm-hmm. we were just talking within your research, and so there. I think there's a huge linkage between the trans community and the disability community um, insofar as, and well, the thing that I love about the trans community is that they've had to build their gender expression out of nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't mean out of nothing, they've used what's been available to them, but they've not been really given a, a sexuality that is theirs until really recently. And the same could be said for disability stuff, We're, people with disabilities are not given a sexuality, period. There's right. nothing for them to draw from unless they want to talk about tragedy and talk about how hard their sex life went, which all of that's very valid, but they need something more than that. Right. Right, absolutely. I've, I've found that it's kind of interesting what ends up happening when you're using pieces that are already there to build your identity. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that I've struggled with through my transition where I'll have, you know, peers that are also transitioning, for example. And, you know, I think we've discussed this before, but like the, the seemingly uh, natural or obvious progression of transition, for example, and how that lines up with heteronormativity and expectations for masculinity and femininity. Yeah. it's very interesting when you go against that and you're kind of like, you know what? No, I'm, I'm going to question this next step and not just take it blindly. 
um, but question why this is even a step at all, or why is this necessary? You know. And when you have a disability, you don't get the you don't you're not allowed to question that right. kind of stuff. You're not allowed to. I mean, you are allowed to, but societally, you already have enough shit going on going against you. You're supposed to just pick one or the other and be happy with it. So the whole idea of being gender queer and a gimp, or gender mm-hmm. queer and a cripple, or gender queer and disabled, that's happening more and more, but mainstream homonormativity and heteronormativity you're not allowed to you're not given the access to explore that absolutely absolutely i've noticed that in working with the students that i work with uh, um, by day i work as a teaching assistant uh, at a school for special education students and yeah the the amount of attention that's paid to personal expression whether that's in regards to gender or sexual orientation, really isn't there. Um, and the students that I work with are adults now, 18 and older, you know, between 18 and 20. So these are things that are very present and aren't being discussed. And, yeah, I, I really like that you pointed out heteronormativity but also homonormativity. I think that's something that's not often discussed. No, it really isn't. It's something honestly when I came up with the term I thought that I I thought that I was really cool one day and I <laughs> come up with it. I was wrong. <laughs> I was super wrong. Um, but I love that term because we talk about heteronormativity like that's accepted. But the minute we challenge the homonormativity and say, and say within our own community, hey, this mm. is problematic, everybody oh, no, that's possibly not happening because I'm queer. And so um, I think we need to look at homonormativity with respect to especially, uh, in my case, as a queer man, what it means to be a queer man with disabilities. Right. And so, or what it means to be a queer man who doesn't fall within those lines. And that's what I really, that's why I admire a lot of trans individuals who are saying, well, fuck that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, adhere to the the homonormative ideals and I'm going to break away from that. Now, that makes it harder to socialize within those communities, but I think it's so, so important. Absolutely. And I, and I think it really boils down to as well, like there's, there's a monolithic idea of what bodies ought to be like um, and they're due to media representation or the limited amount of representation, I should say, what ends up happening is kind of like this process of amplification where one definition of what it means to be trans or disabled is being presented. So there's the presumption that, well, all trans people must experience their bodies in this way or all people with disabilities must, you know, live in, in certain ways. Um, and I've kind of explored this term of social eutrophication, I call it which is basically like this concept of eutrophication. It's kind of like my eco-feminist inside. It's like, yes, let's, quite, let's, let's pull from this. But eutrophication basically in a short story is, you know, when you see lakes, they have the algae on top. And the algae forms because there's a lot of nutrients in the water. Right. And then what ends up happening is while the algae is really, you know, visible and, and thriving, anything underneath isn't surviving because of the lack of oxygen, because there's no sunlight going through. So in that way, it's kind of like media representation where you have one projected image of what it means, for example, to be trans, and then all the other alternatives that are below the surface 
kind of get snuffed out, for example, because they're not given any kind of daylight. They're not given any oxygen or air time. Um, yeah, and that's... So it can become dangerous. Totally. I completely agree. And I think with within disability, the overarching stereotypes, you have, one, you have two options. You can pity yourself the mm-hmm. whole way through and be sad about everything all the time. That's okay, because you're meant to be depressed. Or you can be... I'm going to overcome everything. I'm going to... But there's no middle ground where you can say, okay, I'm just going to live with this and I'm going to tell you how I feel about it and I'm going to... That's going to be my experience um, and I'm going to just live like live as a disabled person whatever that looks like, that's going to be me. We're not, we're not allowed to, to do that. We have to fall within those two tropes and it's similar, I think, within the trans community that you, you either have to be hyper-masculine or hyper feminized to be accepted um and i think yeah yeah absolutely i've always seen that as like there's no room let's say for being i don't like to say there's no room for being average but like to just lead to just live yeah to just to just live and i think that damages a lot of our our sexual the possibilities that we have sexual sexually because we are forced into these ideas for me when i go clubbing with people and I go try to be, you know, um, I go into queer spaces, my immediate go-to is I have to be hyper-masculine because that's what's going to get me laid or that's what's going to get somebody to notice me because that's what's sexy and that's something that's been really hard for me to break. Do you find as a trans man something similar where you have to be hyper-masculine to be seen, to be read as a, as a man? Absolutely. Um, it's interesting because I've been transitioning now for about a year and a half and medically transitioning. And when I first started, maybe about six months into my transition, I began modeling for an all transgender modeling agency in New York City. I've seen the pictures. I have. I did my research. <laughs> I saw the pictures. <laughs> and the interesting thing about that experience was a few things. Prior to my transition, I would have never considered modeling to be a reality for me. It just was not the way I was feeling in my body, but also just like it was beyond reason. You know, I just was like, I never would have considered it. And I was approached uh, by the founder of the organization and asked to model. And I said, you know what, this is a new experience. I'm going to try it. And a lot of cool things came out of it, and a lot of really interesting realizations. Um, what I realized was it's great to have that validation of your body. Yep. Uh, though it's also, it was damaging for me in a way, and I think specifically because I was so early on in my transition, uh, the, the emphasis on appearance, and I think the modeling industry in general, we see like, you know, of course it's an emphasis on appearance, However, it's also an emphasis on uh, heteronormative ideas of what it means to be masculine or feminine, what it means to be a man that's considered attractive. Yeah. Um, and that pressure was really hard for me to bear, especially at that time. And I feel like that pressure is difficult for anyone in that situation. But then when you add in the layer of trans identity, it becomes even more difficult because for me, there was already a pressure to pass and then that just kind of exacerbated that pressure uh, to be hyper-masculine, to be muscular. You know, I, I got a gym membership. I started trying to lift weights, and it's not naturally me. 
Yeah. You know, I'd much rather just be in a library or something. I'm not really. Or sit at home in Netflix and watch and eat some ice cream. That's what I would do. I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> so it definitely brought out that side, those pressures, and I, I find that you know when I started dating as a trans guy. Um, and exploring sexuality in a trans body, yeah, there was definitely a fear of like, well, if I'm not masculine enough, maybe I won't be desirable. Um, maybe I won't get a date or I'd be nervous to reveal that I was trans when I would go out on dates. Yeah, I guess. You know, being seen as less than, you know, like, yeah. and this is another thing that I think can be a parallel. Like in a trans body, sometimes I feel like when I don't measure up, I'm perceived as like a cheap imitation, you know. Yeah, and I, I feel that I feel so much. So many things you said are are resonating with me in terms of um, to go back to the modeling thing. I've modeled mm-hmm. too in terms of disability. I've I've put myself out there and said, okay, I'll yeah, yeah. I'll take photos of myself for you, or I want, and I've asked to be part of these spaces to show with a very specific thing in mind of I want to make sure there's representation. To force mm-hmm. the representation down their throat and say, "There's a sex pun in there somewhere," but I'm doing it to to really um, to say, "Here I am." And when you do that, you realize how quickly. Well, I'm pretty comfortable with my cookie pouch body and my like non-muscular or whatever kind of body that I have. I'm pretty comfortable like on my own. But when you go in those spaces and you are forced to, you know, there's a camera in your face saying, "Oh, you look look sexy. Do this." It's really hard to feel like you measure up because you're looking at the pictures going, oh, well, if I was able-bodied and muscular, it would look like this. Or, oh, the other models that I see doing this are not in a chair. Um, right. And so I feel very similar in that way when it comes to the to the modeling. It's a great, it's a rush of like, oh, my God, somebody's professionally taking my photo. Mm-hmm. This is great. Where could it end up? This could do a lot. Of, this could help the cause way, way more than I thought it would. But then mm-hmm. there's also this internal, like, Oh God! What am I doing? I'm taking my clothes off. This is so weird. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's definitely can be. It can really boost your self-esteem. Um, I know it did for me. Though, yeah, it also had more long-term effects in terms of feeling like, well, do I measure up or what is this doing for public representation? You know, how are people internalizing these photos? Yeah. And I think in the both the trans and queer communities, we have to look at the representation we have. Or the, no, the trans and disabled community, we have to look at the representations that we have. When we look at the disabled representation of what's in the, what's in the media, there's never somebody in a power chair. There's mm-hmm. never somebody who isn't a basketball star or isn't, hasn't, been, hasn't right. been paralyzed or hasn't been... Like, there are images of disabled models that I think are beautiful images but you look at them and you go, are you are you really discussing disability or are you just perpetuating able stereotypes that you've like? And I I'm guilty of it too. I'm totally guilty of doing the same thing because we don't have any other role models, so we take by what we think we think is sexy, and it's really hard. It's been hard for me in doing this work to break that mold of like what I think is sexy as a disabled queer man, and just be like. There's a picture I took recently actually came out today of me just getting naked for queer men's bodies. And there's one shot of my of me naked with my belly out. And I remember looking at the shot going, 
it's a great shot, but I where's my six pack? Like why? How? Where's <laughs> that? And I felt so ashamed that I felt that way because I shouldn't have worried. Like if I'm really doing it to really do it and really show the truth of my experience, my having a belly should not be. I shouldn't worry so much. Yeah, I can totally identify with that, uh, particularly as a trans man that, you know, I've elected not to undergo top surgery. When I take photos, you know, I, I briefly mentioned before, uh, my friend recently did an exhibit um, that was basically about breaking gender binaries, and he did these beautiful uh, embroidery on these blankets of, of chests of trans men and some trans men had undergone top surgery, but mine in particular, I had not. And, you know, at the gallery, it was interesting seeing other people observe the blankets, you know, because there was the ones with the top surgery, and then there was mine. And, you know, there's a side of me that, like, will post it and be like, hashtag bro with breasts, and, like, be really, you know, proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also a part of me that's kind of like, Wow, you know, a little, you know, I, similar to what you were just describing, like, where, where are my pecs, you know, where, why haven't I, you know, and it, as much as this is, I guess there's a difference in the sense that, like, in this, in the topic of top surgery, it's elective, however, it's also, like, I can't really bring myself to do it because of the, because of my values in terms of, like, the way I'm perceiving bodies, and I want to holistically accept myself, though that's also in no way uh, something against trans men who decide to opt for these surgeries. I totally understand it, and at times want it myself, you know? Yep. Um, no, I mean, I think there are a lot of parallels. and So for me, with, with my non-normative, non-muscular, like non I, I I will openly tell people that I have a cookie a cookie pouch body where I you know my favorite pastime is Netflix and ice cream I'm I'm not ashamed to like and I I and you know working out for me is not something that is really really simple um, because of what all my needs are but when you see photos of yourself where you don't fit a normative standard it's disturbing that even even we the two of us you and I you as a trans man and me as a disabled queer man who do this partly to ensure representation, look at those photos, both of us knowing what we know and doing the work we do, and we still go, oh, I don't, it's not fitting all the cookie cutter ideals that it should, and that pissed me off. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is, and it, it brings about a lot of internal conflict for me of like, I don't want to feel that I study gender, like, why am I thinking this? And then it's also revealing about the power of media representation, mainstream ideas of what it means to be beautiful or what it means to be a certain way, you know, what it means to be a man, what it means to be, you know? I mean, it just, it just highlights that in, in the way we sexualize one another, we as a society generally have a long way to go before we're okay with ourselves. And when I, even when I was looking at those photos today that came out, which I love, I was shaming myself for a minute, being like, "Oh, well, you're too, you're too big there. That doesn't look, you know, you don't look. Another model could look like this." And there was a lot of shame around it. But I, I'm trying really hard to look at all, to look at all the photos I take now and know that somebody in my position, right now, who's like 15, 16, and queer and disabled, is going to look at that and go, oh, "Okay, 
there's somebody like me now. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've tried to do with your work as a trans man? Yeah. Uh, what I what I try to do is, I mean, I'm actually in the process of, I ideally would really like to start going to high schools to talk to students about my experience uh, as a trans guy and trying to build coalitions and, you know, gap bridges that are coming across between the cis and trans community. Um, so what I If you I ever found... want to do a joint workshop, let me know. <laughs> There's so much so, we could talk about. Absolutely. Um, and basically, when I think about it, you know, there's that representation, that identification within the community of, yeah, like, this trans guy is like me. I mean, it's it's amazing the power of social media. I've gotten messages on Instagram, for example, uh, where someone had followed me for a while, and he was like, you know what, I just need to let you know, like, your story is really inspiring, and if it wasn't for you putting yourself out there and your experience out there, I wouldn't have had the courage to start transitioning myself. Uh, so really powerful stuff, and I think that putting oneself out there and really saying, you know what, this is me, and I'm proud to be who I am, and this is my experience, and I want to share it, um, that's a very powerful tool for other people and can really facilitate change yep. uh, within the community. I also think in regards to what I just mentioned about gapping bridges, I know when talking specifically about the trans community, what I like to talk about basically is, for example, the uh, the narrative of the before and after photo and how with transition a lot of times you'll see this, you know, people will post like throwback Thursday and they'll have like an old photo of themselves prior to transition and then a recent photo. Yeah. And basically what it does in my mind is it kind of, it, it seems like it inherently lists a preference of like the after photo is the more preferred photo and it's better. Um, and I think they're... I, and I find too, a lot of those photos tend to, again, fall in, fall in very homonormative. Like I, I saw one the other day of somebody randomly who transitioned and they went from from one really heteronormative picture of them Mm-hmm. pre-transition to hyper-masculinize like I'm now I've now changed completely and here I am mm-hmm. and I, I looked at the photo and I went that's what well, it has okay great but did you really know or are you just perpetuating an ideal that isn't really necessarily true yeah yeah and I think what ends up happening too is it leaves out one's past you know and i when i think about that like what what does it mean to cut off the past self and and what do you have to shut down and erase from yourself in order to do that to deny your past experiences um because i know for example for me i'm really really grateful for the woman that i was because if it wasn't for her i wouldn't be here today yeah. Uh, if it wasn't for her taking those risks and, and wanting to be true to herself and live authentically, I wouldn't be half the person I am. So I, I really am grateful for who I was and incorporate that as a part of me. I don't necessarily, even though I'm referring to my past self as her, this is incorporated into who I am and my experience. 
Um, and I also think with the before and after photo, what gets cut out is the middle. Um, and it, and it seems to suggest that there's a, there's an end point, um, where I believe that we're all constantly changing and growing and, um, there's never truly an after photo for any of us, whether we're cis or trans. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, I think it's very similar to the disabled community in that disability can happen to you at any point. Mm-hmm. Any point in your life, for whatever reason, whether it be congenital like me or via an accident or some life event happened to you where disability comes into your life, you never, you never, you will eventually at some point have disability in your life. So when you, I've seen it in the disability community where somebody will post if they've been in an accident or if they had disability kind of enter their life at a different point, they'll show a picture of them pre-disability where they're, you know, happy and good and they'll show a picture of them after disability where they're in a wheelchair or using a, using a mobility device, still happy, but to show like the difference. And I think those are great, but I think we have to find a way to, like you were saying, incorporate both experiences into the one person that's there now. Absolutely. And be able to also cherish the present you know, cherish the, the middle period. Like I know a lot of trans guys want that one year photo and it, and I was guilty of that. I'm like, I just want to know what I'm going to look like one year on T. I just want to know what that's going to feel like. Yeah. And then I got there and I was kind of like, okay, here I am. You know, it's like, you know, those early months, there's so much change that's happening and I wanted to be able to cherish that while it was happening because it's, it's, that's not always the case. It's a unique time. And uh, I really think that it's important to also emphasize that we all go through this, you know, regardless of our embodiment. Like we're all going through evolution and growth and change. Yep. Um, it's really important to know. It's totally important to remember that we're, you know, we're, we are all going through stuff now. Um, I kind of want to get to the sexier part of the conversation that I, you know, <laughs> it is a, it is a podcast about sex and disability. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you were talking earlier about dating and being trans. Mm-hmm. Um, what has that experience been like for you, uh, in terms of feeling like you fit? I think when it comes to dating as a trans person, it can be very challenging. One, because depending on where you live, um, that really can can determine your social climate in regards to your acceptance as a trans person and whether or not you should reveal that while you're dating. Um, I've been really fortunate in terms of where I live. I live in New York City, so... You know, it's it's a very it's it's more progressive than other parts of the world and even the U.S. Um, so what I found is that even here, I've been nervous to kind of come out about that and and allow people to know. Oh, hey, you know, I'm trans. Should I tell them before I go out on a date? Should it be a surprise after the date? Like, when should this happen? Yeah, and a part of the reason why I asked you to kind of explore that is because there's a parallel between disclosure of your transness and disclosure of my disability. Okay. As in, if I'm meeting a person online, do I tell them, you know, do I say, hey, guess what, I'm super disabled, or do I, right. do I, hide, do I not tell them? Um, and I think it parallels because, like, 
they, they know I'm disabled and very open about that, but when we go on the date and I tell them that I need help with food or I need help with my drink or I disclose more and more little bits of my disability and my, my crippledness as I would refer to it, um, that I'm then scared of how, how much can I tell them before they run away. And I think from what it sounds like, that parallels the trans experience. How, how trans can I be before you're going to not be there anymore? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, and I, I would experiment with this. I was like, because, you know, online dating has served as a huge means, at least for me, it was like a very primary means of meeting people. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just like, at least with some dating sites now, and not all of them, but for example, like OkCupid, now you can put that option that you're trans on your profile. And I also played around with that. Like, should I put that on the profile? Will I even get a message back if I put that I'm trans, if I just put it out there right away? Um, should I not include it and then, you know, tell them after they've already been on a date with me or after they're already out with me? I mean, <laughs> um, and I had varying responses um, but I did always come away with a feeling of like, I don't really know where I fit in, in terms of people who identify as gay, straight, bi, like, how does this work? Because, because I'm trans, will I be able to attract a straight woman? Um, lesbians no longer seem to really want to date me. Uh, you know, so where do I fall on that? So that's been interesting. And I, and I, and that is totally interesting. Like I never considered that you would have to then think about which sect of our community, LGBT, to SIA, all the alphabet soup of community that we have, which is great, and I I support all of it. But it's interesting that you had to then consider which one you would best be suited for. Um, and I I felt the same as a disabled queer man. Uh, in, in you know which I always knew that I was attached to men. Mm-hmm. or male presenting um, individuals, but I never was sure, you know, which type would would, would my disabled body attract. And so I, I, I feel there's a parallel there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it really comes down to the person. You know, it's, it's hard to... I found that it was hard for me to categorize because I dated some straight women that were totally okay with it. And I also went on dates with straight women who, once they found out that I was trans, never contacted me again. Um, I my my spouse identifies as 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 bi and queer. Um, so I've noticed that that's kind of where I tended to gravitate towards queer and pansexual communities. Um, it just makes it makes sexual orientation a much more trickier area to traverse. When, and, you know, and it's specifically the emphasis on who's going to be attracted to me, you know? Yeah, it's like we know, we know who we're attracted to. We have that set typology in our brains already. But then it's like when you're the one who is, quote, different, how do you, how do you navigate that without feeling like you're going to be ostracized if you try? Yeah, and I think another interesting parallel too, and I remember this, when I came out to my parents as trans, one of their concerns was worrying like who would want to date me kind of thing. Who could I date? Who would I be with? Um, And I think the presumption was that I 
perhaps maybe would end up dating another trans person. Um, and that, that's come up a couple of times, not just with my parents, but in general, you know, I've had people ask me if my partner is trans as well. Um, so it's kind of like, well, if you're together, you, you must both be trans, you know? And while there are trans couples that I know, even personally, yeah. uh, I don't think that's necessarily the norm. And it's interesting how that gets categorized. Like, if you're trans, you must be dating another trans person. And the same with disability. If you're disabled, you... Oh, like, I, I have friends, and we go and we walk around all the time. They're disabled, and I'm disabled. And we'll walk around, and people will go, Oh, you guys are so cute together. And we'll both go, We're just friends. <laughs> like, we're not... Yes. <laughs> like, thanks, but no. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a lot of parallels, and I think, what do you, how do you think that the trans community and the disabled community could work together? Or should be working together if, if they're not? I don't think they are enough. I don't think they are enough either, and I, I think there's definitely, like we mentioned before, a lack of acknowledgement that people with disabilities, um, there's no acknowledgement of sexual orientation or gender identity among people with disabilities, like acknowledging that that exists and that's valid and real and why aren't we talking about this community? Yeah. Um, I also think, too, like understanding that our bodies are perceived and scrutinized in similar ways uh, and the ways in which we navigate the world can parallel and there can be connections there. I think what ends up happening is when we acknowledge that we have fractured identities. So maybe we're not all trans, or maybe we don't all identify as uh, queer, for example. There's other ways in which we can make connection and bridge those gaps and say, you know, like, if I'm in a room full of people, in some way or another, I can connect to every single one of those people through those fractures in our identities. And I think by doing that, building building communities that are uh, based on multiple identities builds really strong coalitions. Yeah. And I think what ends up happening, particularly with the trans community, um, people with disabilities, is that it's a very individually focused thing. Yeah. Notice that it's focused on individual embodiment. And when we're talking, for example, about like the representations of, let's say, greatness, you know, you need to be like, you know, a model or you need to be able to have, you know, be a basketball player, you know, all these great expectations. It's like, it's on your individual shoulders to do this. It's like kind of like the bootstrap Smith, where if you work hard enough, you can accomplish greatness too and have these success stories, quote unquote. Um, and it's all focused on the individual, which then bleeds out into the community of like, well, this one trans person looks like this. So, this is going to be a representation of the entire trans community. Um, what ends up happening, though, is that doesn't bring the community together. No, it fractures it more. It fractures it more, and it creates like this concept of like horizontal hostility, where we're competing against each other, uh, and who wants to be, you know, the most attractive trans guy or the most visible person, um, or the sexiest disabled guy, or yeah, right. And then we just compete against each other and we forget what, what we actually, what, what's actually going on and the, and the systems that are actually at play that are putting together the structures and the ideas that are placing us in the situations that we're in to begin with. 
Um, so it prevents vertical, uh, I don't want to say vertical hostility, but in a way it does. You know, we're so focused on each other, intercommunal kind of stuff that we're forgetting what's really going on at a larger scale. And we're so worried because we've been so marginalized, the two groups. We're so worried that if one person gets a, a foothold, that our whole cause will be for naught. So right. It's like we, we can't, I can't let you as a trans person overshadow my disabled identity because then disability will never be seen. Where when the truth of the matter is like there are trans disabled people and there are, you know, there's a, there's so much connection that we're not really seeing. And I, I really want to find a way to, and I, I mean, I'm a cisgendered white man, so I'm saying this very carefully, but I do want to find a way to bridge the gap and talk about the parallels between these two communities. And that's why I think this conversation has been so valuable because a lot of what we've talked about is comes from the same place of fear, rejection, and wanting to be seen. Absolutely. And wanting to be able to engage in in pleasure, you know, getting back to sexuality, wanting to be able to like enjoy our bodies and engage in pleasure. And I, I believe that that's another, another commonality is that our embodiments are often denied pleasure, uh, pleasure in just existing as we are and also sexual pleasure. Yeah, I would, I totally would agree. I think that, I think there's a really great parallel between how trans individuals have to fight for their sexuality and their sex as do people with disabilities having to constantly say yeah hey I want to get I want to have sex this way or I want to have sex this way or like yeah fuck this way or like this to happen like you and you have to do it so loudly when all you really want to say is like do you just see me can you see me please like I'm sure there are trans individuals who didn't necessarily want to scream from the rooftops that they wanted sex this way but they had to because what are the choices they have yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's also tricky when it comes to sex as a trans person because you're dealing with, I mean, you deal with gender dysphoria or you're dealing with like, well, you know, maybe there's a, for example, maybe there's a presumption that I'd want to have sex, a penetrative sex, like, you know, I'd want to wear a strap on all the time and maybe I don't want to. Um, and it's, it's different for every individual. I think there's assumptions that get blanketed for all trans guys, that all trans guys, for example, are going to want to pack or wear a strap-on, when in reality that's not necessarily the case. Um, and I think that, I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this too, like how does how does porn play into this, representations of porn, and what we find, you know, what, do we, what are our representations of, let's say, trans sex? or disabled sex kind of thing. You know, what does yeah. that mean? And I think that even though we can talk about it, there's just like what can be a tasteful way or a truly educational way of informing people that's not uh, invasive. That's a tough line. To, like I, I've, and I've considered, and I've said this before, in blogs and stuff, I've considered doing porn. I've considered doing it. But I'm always concerned about how... When you are done hitting record, when, when, when the puddles of cum are cleaned up and everybody's, you know, we're all, we're all going back to our respective lives, how is that, how are you going to market that? What's going to, what is the end product that the world's going to see? What is the message that you have put on this project 
to make it respectful, and that's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, it's and it's tough to make it like it's tough to make it respectful and sexy porn, you know. So that I mean, that's where my that's why I'm always like I want to do it, but I'm also really not sure if I want to do it. What do you? Can I ask you? What do you think about? I mean, you're referring to more like professional. Um, what do you? Th- or are you referring to like amateur? I was referring to more like professional, professional studio porn. Okay. Yeah, because I also am curious about amateur, which seems to become increasingly popular. Um, and and what is the role in that in our understandings of certain bodies and sexuality? And I mean, I would be I would be totally comfortable doing an amateur porn. Again, it would just depend on what is the message at the end of this thing that you that you're going to be marketing to the audience, right? And how do we make that sexy? And so I think that the trans community and the disabled community have a lot they should talk about with respect to the the parallels. And I hope that this conversation tonight, in this little podcast that I host, that you know, hopefully people are listening to goes and it makes people think about how these communities intersect so so vibrantly yet we don't really connect with each other yeah absolutely and i'm really really grateful to have the opportunity to discuss these things uh and to make this connection where we can come together and be like yeah you know i totally experienced this too and yeah this is like that for me it really does bring forward more authentic relating yeah greater connection Totally. I mean, it's it's so nice. Like you know, like you were saying, it's so nice to sit with somebody and be like, "Yeah, I go through the same kind of shit too," <laughs> even though you know you're able-bodied and I'm not, and I'm cisgendered and you're not. We right. the stories that we just told tonight are pretty much the same, right? Um, and I think that just proves that we need to connect further. So I mean, I guess my advice to anybody listening, anybody who is trans or who's disabled and who wants to talk to each other. Try to connect, I guess. <laughs> which leads me to my next thought, which is like, there are not enough groups that that discuss intersectionality. There's like, there's trans groups and there's like LGBT groups generally. But if you put the two together, where's the where's the trans disabled group or where's the disabled LGBTQ group? There's not a lot of groups that care to bring communities together. Yeah, and you know, in theory, it would be great if we could just have this one big group and we're all like, yeah, we're all inclusive and we're going to really talk about everybody's needs, but that doesn't end up happening, No, at least never. from what I've experienced. You know, particularly when I think about the LGBT community and the involvement of trans individuals in that community or the involvement of of people with disabilities within that community, it's really not... We're really not represented, even though that's kind of where we find refuge a lot of the time. Um, I found that, you know, having those specialty groups can be good. And it's such a tricky thing with identity, you know, because on one hand, we want to have these markers of identity to be able to, like, better... um, To have something to call our own. Yeah, to have something to call our own, to, you know, come together with that identity. However, it's also like, well, if we have these identities, then it inherently separates us as well. Yeah, it's such a identity politics when you, when there's a comorbidity of identities, it's 
extremely tough because you never know which one comes first. Am I crippled first or am I queer first? Mm -hmm. Am I disabled first or am I gay first? Like, it, it, which one do I want to capitalize on? And it's, I'm learning in my experience to just capitalize on the whole. The whole I'm, I'm one package. And if you right. want, if you want to hang out with me, you're going to get both. Absolutely. I think a holistic approach is so important. And that's, that's where I kind of come back to that idea of fractured identity is like, we need to embrace all the parts of ourselves and not cut off any of it in order to fit in somewhere. Um, and that's hard to do. That's hard to do sometimes in some spaces, you know, there's pressure to ignore some parts of ourselves or to accentuate others. Though I do think it is important and we can bring greater understanding amongst communities if we're like, you know what, yeah, I'm here and I'm trans and I'm a person of color, for example. You know, like to be able to say those things uh, and not be afraid of that and what that means. You know, living as a living as a, as a white trans male, it's very interesting to see as well um, the privilege that's afforded in certain spaces and how can you go about navigating that, you know, or where is your place in certain spaces? Like I was a women's and gender studies major and, you know, identified as a lesbian prior to transition. And now I understand that some of the spaces that I once called home or felt really, really comfortable in, I know my place in those roles is much different now. And I respect that as well. But I'd be lying if I said there wasn't like a, a mourning of that, of like, you know, I can't really navigate these spaces in the same way and I miss those spaces. Um, so it gets tricky, you know, where, where can we be? Where should we be? You know, how can we be inclusive, uh, but also be true to our collective identities, you know? Yeah, it's such a gender politics and, and, and space politics. The politics of space are really, really hard. And it's really, you want to include everybody, but you also have to, it's how we include people. So when I'm talking about disability, I don't consider myself an expert, mm -hmm. but I would hope that an able-bodied person wouldn't speak for me. Or if somebody else is talking about race and I'm in the room, I'm not going to be like, well, actually, disability is more... Like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna let them. That's their time to tell their story. I'm not gonna supersede them and say, "Oh, my disability is much more important than you." I'm gonna give up space. Mm -hmm. We have to learn. I think the trans community and the disabled community and those of us who intersect within those communities have to learn to stand with each other and beside each other, um, as opposed to I'm equal, you're equal, so we're gonna fight each other for the equality we deserve. Yeah, we need to realize that we need to stand with each other as opposed to fighting one another. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, and I, I'm not, that's not to say that the trans community and the disabled community are having a fight. I'm <laughs> saying like they don't. They're not connecting enough, and I, all I want, all I want this conversation to do is to connect us. And I think the parallels that we brought up in this episode hopefully will do that. Um, so, Kelly, what's your last parting? parting words for the listening audience about the trans disabled intersection or what you think should be done? I think, I think ultimately we're all human. And I think that it's as cliche as that is, as that's said so much, we're all human. It really is true. We're all human and we really are all in this together. Um, we all, all face difficulties 
in terms of how we navigate certain structures in the world. Um, and I think it's really important to come together. We're stronger together than divided. And, you know, it's, it's so important to have these conversations. And I'm so grateful to be on this podcast and talk about these things and come together and really shed insight on what it means to be human and what it means to share commonalities and make a connection through that. Yeah, I think... I think it's so true, and but I think in saying we're all human, we also have to understand that we're all different humans, mm-hmm. and it's okay to be, it's okay to let your differences shine, but your difference shouldn't overshadow someone else's difference. Um, and I, I think that's what both of our communities need to to learn. Um, and I love that you that both of us were so open with the parallels and just just how much of the same stuff we've gone through means that we should totally be having queer trans disabled connections with each other and we're not so I'm really glad that we could um, at least start a conversation and I hope that anybody who listened is like oh wow I didn't realize it was so similar Um, and I thank you so much for your honesty and your time yeah it's been a pleasure thank you so just before we go um, I've seen the modeling photos I think they're super fun to look at if somebody (laughs) wanted to connect with you um, via social media or via just learn more about your work? How can they do that? Well, uh, I, I am on social media. I have Instagram at guy, uh, guy called Kelly. And I'm on Facebook at Kelly Carbone, K-E-L-L-E-C-A-R-B as in boy, O-N-E. <laughs> awesome. I will put links to that in the podcast. Kelly, it's been such a pleasure. I'm so glad we finally got to do this, and we will certainly talk again. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much. I love that interview with Kelly, and I love how honest it was, and I love that we uncovered parallels together, and we basically discovered that the, the trans community and the disabled community need to be talking more to each other, and we need to look at the intersectionality within all of our communities and all of our representations and all of our different identities and see that we all come together in one way or another. And when he says we're all human, he's not doing it flippantly. He's saying that all of our experiences are somehow connected and we need to learn to, instead of fighting each other for a representational spot and and not connecting with outside of our own communities, we need to realize that everything intertwines and it's okay to bring these things together. And I love that our conversation, I hope that this conversation we had on the podcast in this episode made some of you sit up and think, oh, wow, I never realized how linked these two communities might actually be. Or I never considered these two communities having anything in common at all, and now maybe you do. So I'm glad to have brought that forward, and thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. Copyright Notice. The Disability After Dark podcast, including title, graphic, content, interview recordings, and title music, produced and recorded by Chris Ujiuchi, are property of Andrew Gerza. This podcast cannot be reproduced without permission from the owner. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability.